Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Europe leads the way on privacy. We'll discuss Mark Zuckerberg's appearance before members of the EU Parliament. We'll find out about the Puerto Rico agenda's quest to build the most energy-efficient, hurricane-proof homes they can in Puerto Rico. And outlaws from popular westerns often pop up in reggae music. On Global Notes, we'll survey reggae's epic attraction to the outlaw theme. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg appeared before members of the European Parliament yesterday. At Zuckerberg's request, the format was a lot different than his to and fro with Congress. The parliamentarians asked questions for about 45 minutes straight. Then Zuckerberg responded to the general themes of the questions after the parliamentarians had finished. The most contentious moment came at the end of the hearing, and they ran over by about 15 minutes, and Zuckerberg made a move for the door. I think I was able to to address the high-level areas in each, um, and I'll make sure that we follow up uh, with each of you afterwards to make sure that your specific questions um, get addressed. And we're going to have someone uh, come to to do a a, a full hearing uh, soon to answer more of the technical questions as well. So thank you again for for inviting me. I think there was one question raised by Guy Verhofstadt, and that's linked to my question, and that's the separation of different services. And I think it's a very important question in this round, the market power of uh, Facebook, and the question if you cross-use, for example, data between Facebook and WhatsApp. So it would be good if you say at least one word to that. Will you allow users to escape targeted advertising. I mean, I asked you six yes and no questions. I got not a single answer. And of course, well, you asked for this format, well, for a reason. Okay, I'll make sure we follow up and get you answers to those. Let's talk about Mark Zuckerberg's appearance before members of the European Parliament with Zizi Papakarisi. She's a professor of political science and chair of the communications department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She edits the journal Social Media and Society and is co-editor of the book Trump and the Media. Thanks for joining us again, Zizi. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You know, it seems like Mark Zuckerberg didn't exactly bowl people over there uh, in, in Europe. Um, what do you think was so unsatisfying about his appearance? Obviously, he didn't really um, – there's like a trust issue. Sometimes he says things, but people really don't trust what he's saying. Uh, for sure. This is a – it's a different ball game. This is the European Union. The rhetoric is different, and uh, the ceremonial aspect of the testimony is distinct. Um, I expected the questions to be more focused and specific, and pressing no doubt, and to see 
less public theater and performance uh, in the EU. They ended up being lengthy because of the format that was chosen, and he had to respond to a number of questions at the same time, which created some uh, confusion, and we saw some outbursts from officials um, at the end. Some of these were qualified. Um, officials are elected differently into parliament and um, placed into committees uh, that are formed in different ways. So there is less of a need um, to use the televised or streamed aspect of this to play to the sentiment of the viewer. Although for sure, legislators and um, Facebook wanted to communicate that this is um, an important issue. This is a body uh, that has been focused on GDPR, the um, for some time. And GDPR so is the was, general data protection regulation that is coming into force on Friday. Correct, correct. Um, so I was hoping to hear more questions uh, regarding that. And it ended up being more about um, Cambridge Analytica, less about GDPR, I thought. You know, I, he said that Facebook was going to be in full compliance with the GDPR when it comes into effect on Friday. Uh, the the parliamentarians and people don't seem to think that's true. They just don't they, they don't trust them there. I think uh, it is a trust issue. Um, uh, it's exactly as you pointed out at the very beginning of this. He makes assurances, but it's very difficult uh, uh, for folks to take them at uh, face value. GDPR um, is um, something that we're not as uh, familiar in the United States, but it's a vast legislative framework. It covers a number of very different issues. All of those issues are focused around protecting private consumer data. But um, to get uh, an idea of the enormousness of this, uh, these include things like how student grades are shared, displayed, and stored electronically, how things like your condo association fees are displayed, Uh, And who has not paid them, what data banks store, how those data are stored, what third parties these are shared with, telecommunications companies, how they share your data. So some of these things we have addressed uh, in the United States with with specific bills and acts. Some we have not. Some of these things uh, Facebook has already addressed as well. In Europe and in the EU specifically, every country had its own legislative measures And those varied. Some countries did not have any measures or did not enforce them. So this framework ensures that everyone is on the same page. Rules are enforced and officers called data protection officers are in place to protect consumer rights. So Facebook has already addressed several of the GDPR requirements, if not everything in its entirety. And they really don't, nobody has a way out of this. I mean, if you want to do business in the EU, you have to comply. Everybody has to be compliant. So it's, I mean, it is a bit of a mystery why uh, why the lack of trust. It's not really like he has an option to sort of, you know, uh, scoot out of the, uh, or get off the GDPR train, if you will. And this is affecting people in this country. It's an extraterritorial thing. If you do business in Europe and use the internet, you're, mm. um, you've got to comply with this thing. And people are probably getting messages now that they have to check off boxes and, and things of that nature. Uh, for sure. You know, people both in the, the European Union and also in the United States uh, are getting, uh, uh, have been receiving rather, uh, new terms of service, messages that have to do with uh, approving uh, how their data are going to be shared. Uh, 
you know, there are a number. I mean, there are a few things that um, Zuckerberg was questioned about that he actually um, has uh, complied with. You know, one of the last questions uh, um, that had to do with providing users with the option to um, opt out of targeted advertising is something actually that Facebook put into place a couple of weeks ago, um, at least for the for the U.S. users. So there's a little bit of you know misinformation going on, and I also didn't understand uh, Zuckerberg's hesitation to respond to that easy question. It seemed like he was in a in a rush to <laughs> to get out of the room there. And uh, he's he also talked about a, a clear history feature that um, that, that Facebook is uh, that is going to have, and that he seems to think that they're making a lot of progress on all these issues. Again, uh, I would be very encouraged by the steps that uh, Facebook has taken as a company. Um, he. Uh, as a CEO, has made a lot of concessions. Uh, he's promised to offer better privacy options, the option to delete personal history that you mentioned. Uh, they are also actively looking into ways to minimize, minimize how vulnerable they are through their pages feature, and that's the page that um, that has to do with fake news um, circulating. And he's getting used to being held accountable, which is good. You know, his company is among the com companies most open to social sciences, data scientists and engineers who visit and who are counseled on these things. And um, that's not the case with other companies. Um, Twitter is notoriously esoteric compared to Facebook. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't been called, uh, their practices haven't been called to question. The challenge for Zuckerberg will be, I think, to sustain consumer confidence without having to alter his business model. It's his business model that leads, that you know, almost requires the collection of data. So he will need to find a balance that allows him to turn a profit without exposing user information. But, you know, so far his stock is doing great. <laughs> it's, um, it's risen again and it's, uh, it's been pretty stable throughout the month. I'm talking with Zizi Papakarisi from the University of Illinois at Chicago and we're discussing Mark Zuckerberg's appearance yesterday before members of the European Union Parliament. And I wanted to play another clip where, and we're going to combine one of the questions with his later answer that he did afterwards to get a feel for uh, what his response to the questions were. And this is where Zuckerberg talks about um, monopoly and he's questioned about Facebook being a monopoly. Okay. Uh, would you consider your company as a monopoly, as a politician? I believe in markets and rules, but I also want to stop all kinds of possible monopolies. And that's why I think it is time to discuss breaking Facebook monopoly, because it's already too much power in only one hand. We exist in a very competitive space where people use a lot of different tools for communication. Where the average person uh, uses about eight different tools for communication, ranging from um, all sorts of private messaging um, up to more broadcast mediums to things where they're communicating with groups of people and, and all of their friends at once. Um, so from where I sit, it feels like there are new competitors coming up every day. There are competitors that reach tens and hundreds of millions of people. And we're constantly needing to evolve our service in order to stay relevant and serve people well. So that feels like it's a competitive environment where there are many choices that people have. 
What do you make of what uh, Zuckerberg is saying there? He feels like he's in a competitive environment, and he also cited Facebook's advertising dollars. They get 6% of advertising dollars, which doesn't seem like much, but uh, but there seemed to be an urge to break up the, the, the whole panoply of companies, the WhatsApp, the Instagram, the Facebook. It, it, it all adds up to a lot, and those parliamentarians did not seem to like this. Uh- I, in this particular instance, I agree with Zuckerberg. Um, I do think that the Facebook, uh, Twitter platform should be regulated, but not as monopolies. It does seem like he, I mean, he does own several of his ex-competitors, Instagram, WhatsApp, and so on. But when you look at it from a global perspective, um, or from his point of view, it's far from being a monopoly. Uh, he has competitors, and they're growing by the numbers daily. And uh, there's also, I mean, in Europe, there are many platforms that are as popular, if not more popular than Facebook. Take, for instance, um, Telegram, which is very popular in Russia. Or take uh, the Chinese giant Tencent, and they own and run the Chinese version of Facebook, Twitter, and WhatsApp. So, I, I, I mean, I would call, I would understand Facebook as a very powerful company, um, I would say that they set the stance, the standards that a lot of the other platforms have to follow in order to be competitive. I would not, I would not call them as a monopoly. I would not regulate them as a monopoly, I, although I do for sure think that they need to be regulated in terms of how they handle, um, how they collect and store and share uh, consumer data. Uh, do you, do you, why um, is there this reluctance, uh, do you think, on the part of the United States to uh, be more like Europe and, and to like ask questions about these kind of things and get answers? It just doesn't seem like uh, people in Congress were, were as interested as some of these European parliamentarians. Uh, Historically, there's been a difference between the EU and the United States in terms of uh, regulation and the regulatory frameworks that are applied. Uh, The United States uh, tend to follow a policy of self-regulation, so they tend to um, invite companies uh, to promote uh, behaviors that are healthier for the market and also in some ways manage to protect consumers. you know, the European Union tends to have a heavier uh, regulatory hand. Uh, now, whether this regulatory hand is always successful or ends up creating additional bureaucracy, it, you know, that's a question that remains to be, uh, that needs to be further examined. Uh, let's play another cut from the um, experience that Mark Zuckerberg had yesterday. And I wanted to go to a political cut with uh, Nigel Farage, who's from Britain. Mm. And he is uh, notorious for the Brexit affair. And he had, uh, he put something to them about the fairness of Facebook. Perhaps you're horrified by this creation of yours and what it's led to. I don't know. But uh, what is absolutely true is that since January of this year, You've changed your modus operandi, you've changed your algorithms, and it has led directly to a very substantial drop in views and engagements for those that have got right of centre political opinions. It's very important to me that we're a service that allows for a wide variety of political discourse. We view that as a big part of our responsibility, 
And I can commit to you here today um, that we will that we we have never and and will not. Um, make decisions about um, what content is allowed um, or how we do ranking um, on the basis of of a political orientation. Uh, So there he is defending the latest algorithm that uh, Facebook has. Uh, What do you think? um, Why does Nigel Farage feel the way he feels and why does uh, Mark Zuckerberg feel the way he feels? Well, I think, you know, the way that Nigel Farage feels the way he feels has puzzled many people throughout (laughs) the world. I think it's quite ironic that out of all officials, he would be posing those questions. He's responsible for one of the most massive misinformation campaigns uh, to have taken place in the UK. And that's that's something that everybody's admitted to this point. he, but he th- he brings up something that a lot of conservatives are feeling right now, even in the United States. It, you know, I mean, this is a whole question that has to do with, with fake news. And the truth is that nobody could have foreseen uh, the fake news extravaganza. Uh, and, and it's also important to clarify that there is no such thing as fake news. We're really talking about propaganda, and propaganda is something that will always be around. Of course, platforms and their CEOs must be aware of how they are vulnerable to it. But we must also, um, but we must be aware how we ourselves are easily swayed and why we're swayed. Um, before Facebook, we had TV and radio is still quite powerful. Uh, and radio, in fact, uh, not NPR, other radio stations, individual web pages, uh, where where uh, was where many of the fake news reports actually originated, not Facebook. He had an interesting response to all this. He talked about the number of fact-checkers that Facebook has hired. They've got 3,000 fact-checkers in all languages and that, they're, you know, that they've hired them recently. They talked about the 30,000 accounts that they took down during the French elections to, to not skew the French elections. So he, he I thought, um, defended himself on that pretty good. This is correct. Um, uh, it's, it's a reasonable thing to, to say. I mean, they have taken active measures uh, to counter the phenomenon of fake news. Uh, they have hired uh, additional engineers, data scientists, social scientists who are all working together to figure out how to um, solve a problem that is constantly morphing into something new and that doesn't have a perfect solution to it. There will always be some loophole that third parties are going to try try to find, try to identify. And I think Zuckerberg himself admitted in his testimony that we're trying our best, but there is no perfect solution. And the truth is there isn't. The only way to fix this problem is by not collecting any data to begin with. Um, So long as you collect data, you're going to have third parties who are going to be very interested in getting access to and manipulating those data. And Zuckerberg called it an arms race. (laughs) Absolutely. Zizi Papakarisi is professor of political science and chair of the communications department at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and she edits the journal Social Media and Society, is co-editor of the book Trump and the Media. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Mark Zuckerberg and the European Union. Thank you. My pleasure.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the Puerto Rican agenda and their quest to build uh, sustainable, hurricane-proof homes in Puerto Rico. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's been nine months since Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico. According to the Rhodium Group, Puerto Rico's experienced the second longest power outage in history and the worst blackout ever in America. The Puerto Rican agenda, the public policy arm of Chicago's Puerto Rican community, has been actively engaged in relief and rebuilding efforts for the last nine months. They recently returned from a four-day summit on sustainability and development in Puerto Rico. Cristina Pasione Zayas is the co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda of Chicago. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this four-day summit on sustainability and development in Puerto Rico. Who was there? What was happening? Sure. Um, Just to provide a little bit of context, the Puerto Rican Agenda launched a campaign known as Three R's for PR, um, Relief, Rescue, and Rebuild. And so this particular summit um, specifically focuses on the rebuild work that we're advancing. And so there are about 14 individuals um, that came from Chicago, a delegation of architects, um, housing developers, engineers, uh, local community leaders, and met with uh, the leadership in a couple of the towns that we're working really closely with in terms of sustainability efforts. Specifically, um, we met with the mayor of Comerio as well as the mayor of Luisa. And those are two towns that kind of represent the typical geography of Puerto Rico, uh, Comerio being in the mountains, Luisa uh, being coastal, and both of them um, being hard-hit towns. What was the situation like there right now? Did you get a feel for um, the what the people say they want? Well, I would just have to say that the status or the uh, conditions in Puerto Rico are still very fragile. Uh, the infrastructure is just crumbling. And, um, you know, when I was recently out on a trip there in uh, March, you know, we we were driving through the mountains, uh, specifically to Comerio for a pre-meeting leading up to this summit. And, you know, boulders, there was a mudslide that came right in the, the road we were taking. And it was just indicative of how fragile. And the town that we specifically are working with in Comerio, 50% of individuals still do not have electricity. Um, they still are on boil alert with water all across the island. And you still have lots of homes just without roofs. And, you know, if they're lucky, they have tarps. And people forget it being a tropical island, you have rain coming in and out almost on a daily basis. And so, you know, maintaining dry furniture in homes, I mean, just think about the, the challenge with that on a daily basis. How do you get to, from that place to uh, a rebuild? I imagine you're trying to design something better for the next time. Where, what are the kind of strategies that are, people are thinking about? So, um, 
In some of our work, uh, we've partnered with the Illinois Institute of Technology, um, and we've, we're looking at renewable energy. Um, back in April, when the mayor of San Juan visited Chicago, uh, we took her uh, to meet with the lead researcher in terms of um, making microgrids. And we were specifically looking at um, opportunities for Puerto Rico, where it's located um, you obviously have an abundance of solar energy, and there's a real opportunity to leverage that. And so when we're thinking about rebuilding, we're really thinking about renewable energies, reimagining Puerto Rico in the 21st century um, to be able to leverage those natural renewable resources. And so we're looking at developing microgrids and nanogrids and um, working with developers who have been able to create materials. Um, one of them in particular is the uh, Thermal Steel Company. Uh, they have been able to create this material that can withstand 250 mile per hour winds. So that's what we're looking at because, you know, the island isn't going to just get up and move to another geography um, on the planet. Uh, we expect there to be uh, additional hurricanes coming through at the strength of Maria, um, given climate change and what we're seeing. And so we're planning for that. We know it's going to happen. Is having a microgrid always, I mean, it sounds like a pretty cool thing to have a microgrid with solar energy. And then you'd be, you know, you'd have your own reliance. Uh, but is that for the people up there in the mountains in Comerio, do they want to be attached to the regular grid? Is that, are, are you just kind of giving up attaching them to the regular grid because it's just too hard or they, people can't do it or they don't want to build it that way? Well, I think that we have to acknowledge that the former grid never worked. Um, you would have blackouts and brownouts regularly in Puerto Rico. Um, and so I think to reattach to that grid would be like looking back. It really wouldn't be looking forward. And we can find ourselves in the same situation if we rely on that type of energy. And so that's why we're exploring, you know, what are some alternatives? You know, Puerto Rico has an underwater system that we can generate energy from. We have wind. And so the idea is really exploring these natural opportunities in which the island has an abundance. Because, frankly, you know, what we We've seen also just even in the past month in Puerto Rico, you had complete island blackout for a day or two. And so we just really, we can't go back to that system. What's the terrain like there when it comes to rebuilding? Are you in competition with other people uh, who are also trying to rebuild and have ideas? Do you talk to the other, you know, I noticed that AbbVie, uh, the the great big um, drug company, the pharmaceutical, had a, is offering $100 million to Puerto Rico, and they're going to uh, donate it, um, and it's going to housing and things. Are there, are, do you see all these players there? Yeah, I mean, there's opportunity for partnership, but I think what's really important, um, something that we value and we guide our work in, is really working with local leadership. Um, there's been a history and a legacy on the island of not acknowledging the inherent talent, resilience, and expertise of Puerto Ricans on the island. And so as much as um, us here in Chicago as a Puerto Rican community want to leverage our own talent, we want to also be sensitive um, to those who are in leadership 
um, those who are working in community-based organizations and really support them in enhancing and building their capacity to lead these projects. Puerto Rico has historically never been able to determine its own destiny, and we really don't want to participate in that process of uh, continuing that kind of colonial relationship. We think it's really important to leverage Puerto Rican leadership in these opportunities. Uh, do people there have expectations when you're talking to them uh, about when things can get done? Do they have uh, a timeline on their in their own heads? So I think the most pressing timeline is the fact that, you know, we're just about one week away from hurricane season. Um, and so we really need to work quickly. Um, when the mayor of San Juan was with us in Chicago and met with our, our friends at IIT, you know, the discussion really was what can we get done in 45 days um, so that there can be some type of uh, plan of action. If, if there were to be another hurricane or a blackout, could we create this nano grid um, that could go on one of the schools to then be a shelter um, or a, a distribution point for resources and supplies. And so we've just been working really um, tenaciously and persistently to try to set things up uh, so that this next hurricane season, there's at least some type of semblance of a plan. I know that uh, the Chicago Community Trust has been helping out the Puerto Rican agenda. And if people want to do it themselves, how do they do it? Well, um, we can, you know, help folks guide them in that process. Uh, we have a website, the Puerto Rican, it's PuertoRicanChicago.org. Um, we still are fundraising. Uh, we started our fundraising campaign the, the same week that Maria hit. And that first weekend, we uh, were able to raise $70,000 and transform that into emergency supplies that were put in the distribution chain just five days after the hurricane. And so we have this track record of being able to move swiftly, transparently, and meaningfully. And so if folks want to get involved in our campaign, one way to do that is to directly donate um, because we then take that money and turn it into micro grants to, like I said, seed capacity of those on the island. Um, you know, there there really just are the the opportunities are endless. Um I was just recently at the University of Chicago speaking last Friday, and people were asking, what can I do? And I said, you know, you, you can't underestimate what can be done. And, and in a lot of this work, it really is about leveraging relationships and taking an idea from concept to planning to execution, but being persistent in the follow through. I'm talking with Christina Passione Zayas. She is co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda of Chicago, and we're talking about uh, some of the work that they've been doing and the four-day summit on sustainability and development in Puerto Rico that they've been to. I wanted to uh, ask uh, quickly uh, about um, an artist uh, who's been very prominent in the Puerto Rican community here for many years, uh, Gamaliel Ramirez, and he's a muralist. His murals are um, all over town. People um, might have seen a lot of them. Uh, he passed away, and it's a, it's a sad moment for the Puerto Rican community. Yes, Gamaliel was a really um, critical cultural um, producer in our community. Um, he was originally from the Bronx, uh, but he spent about 35 years in Chicago as an artist, um, as a teacher, 
And yes, you mentioned his murals, and however, unfortunately, um, some of them don't exist, uh, you know, due to uh, gentrification. Um, a lot of them that were in Logan Square and Humble Park are no longer there. But I think what's really important about the work that he would advance um, in terms of his like artistic perspective and direction was really, you know, advancing kind of a political analysis as well as a cultural affirmation and specifically rooting that in the African influence and presence in the Puerto Rican culture. And so it is a tremendous loss, um, but he his legacy will live on because we still have his art. As a matter of fact, the executive director of the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Center, who's our fiscal agent in all of this hurricane work, is actually in Puerto Rico right now um, meeting with his family and coordinating the transportation of his art because we're going to be hosting a uh, memorial um, for him at Segundo Ruiz to honor his life, his legacy, and contribution to our community. Well, that sounds uh, like an appropriate thing to do. And I'm grateful that you're doing it. And I we're going to end today with a little bit of his poetry put to music. In addition to uh, artwork, he made poetry as well, which is certainly a form of art in most, <laughs> most considerations. And we'll uh, play a little bit of that. Thanks very much for joining us, Christina Passione Zayas, co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda of Chicago. Thank you. Appreciate it. Up after the break, we'll talk about reggae's epic attraction to the outlaw theme. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. To get up and write a poem, and write a poem, so that the next time I see you, I would have something new, something new that I can read to you, that I can read to you. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The history of reggae music in Jamaica is rooted in a history of rebellion. This week on Global Notes, Worldview production assistant Galilee Abdullah talks about the outlaw narrative in Jamaican reggae and dancehall music. All the money went up my sleeve and they never came down on the Christmas Eve. Come on, you cats. Get up. Going west. Ah. Jamaica was a slave-operated plantation island for two centuries beginning around the mid-1600s. 
the island then became a British colony until Jamaica gained its independence in the 1960s. Within this history of slavery and British colonization, there also existed a history of rebellion and resistance, like the Jamaican Maroon communities who waged war on the masters who enslaved them. In the 1920s, the ideologies of Marcus Garvey and the Black Nationalist Movement led to the Pan-African cultural identity. Pan-Africanism was particularly popular among Jamaica's working class. The Rastafarian movement in the early 30s was born of a Pan-African ideology. A culture shift began when Jamaica declared independence from the British in 1962. The new challenge? In a society colonized for so long, Jamaica had to learn how to be sovereign all over again. Instead of outsiders calling the shots, Jamaicans had to relearn how to regard social hierarchy, law enforcement, obedience, criminality. The themes and lyrics of reggae music not only celebrated this new independence, but also served as a platform for storytelling that reflected Jamaica's history of rebellion. Throughout the 60s, the term rude boy was used to describe a social class of young poor men in Kingston. The rude boys didn't follow the rules. They did everything from petty street crimes to organized criminal activity. While many viewed them with contempt, there was also a kind of respect for their audacity to disregard police authority. Some gained notoriety in violence, others found notoriety in music. was one of the more famous Rude Boy artists in the 1960s. That was his 1969 hit, Rude Boy Train. The music that came out of this rebellious history elevated an outlaw narrative. DJs, as the vocalists were known, told stories of cowboys, Depression-era mobsters. They made endless references to spaghetti westerns and other Old West outlaw films. They even did covers of country music hits. There were a few reggae covers of John Denver's 1971 country hit, Take Me Home, Country Roads, including a cover by Dennis Al Capone and another by Yellow Man. This is Take Me Home, Country Roads by Toots and the Maytals from their 1973 album, In the Dark. Take me home, 
Some DJs named themselves after Old West characters, like Josie Wales and the Lone Ranger. Even real Wild West outlaws, like Johnny Ringo. Some DJs named themselves after movie stars, like Clint Eastwood, Levon Cleef, and John Wayne. The fictional character Lone Ranger is a former Texas Ranger who fought outlaws with his Native American friend, Tonto. The characters were originally introduced to listeners as a radio show in 1933 by Fran Stryker and George W. Trendle at WXYZ in Detroit. This is a clip from the 1956 film adaptation, The Lone Ranger, followed by the song Lone Ranger and Tonto by Jamaican reggae artist Lone Ranger from his 1982 album Hi Yo Silver Away. When the factories first began to send their pall of smoke over the cities, and farmlands in the east offered only the barest living, Americans turned their faces toward the west. They poured into the new territories by thousands, bringing their household goods, fording the mighty rivers and climbing the mountains, fighting Indians and outlaws, praying, toiling, dying. It was a hard land, a hostile land, only the strong survived. A new American breed, the pioneer. In this forge, upon this anvil, was hammered out a man who became a legend. A man who hated thievery and oppression. His face masked, his true name unknown, he thundered across the West upon a silver-white stallion, appearing out of nowhere to strike down injustice or outlawry, and then vanishing as mysteriously as he came. His sign was a silver bullet. His name was the Lone Ranger. <laughs> the adventure of Lone Ranger and Tonto, that most hideous rider. I am silver away. Come say over the hills and I down in the valley. Say over the hills and I down in the valley. Say me and Tanto the peaceful Apache. Say me and Tanto the peaceful Apache. We coming from the east. Other reggae artists preferred to name themselves after mobster or mafia outlaws, like artists Dillinger, Louis Lepke, and Dennis Al Capone. Musician Louis Lepke gets his namesake from 1930s Jewish-American mobster and head of the Murder, Inc. Mafia hit squad, Louis Lepke Bukhalter. This is Louis Lepke's 1981 track, Late Night Movie. Great sounds called Rosemary. She says she loves no other man but me. Well, you see, my name is Louis Lepke. Oh, so it ain't really no matter what they say. Me in a pyjama rosy in a nighty Me sit down in the coach and I watch TV It was the late night movie Lad, it was the late night movie She tell me that her daddy have enough money Considering Jamaica's love for the renegade anti-hero, it shouldn't be surprising that country music has been wildly popular throughout Jamaica's history. The first commercial radio stations came to Jamaica in the early 1950s. That's one of the reasons country music got so popular. The kind of storytelling in country songs is similar to the stories of old Western films. This Brigadier Jerry track is from the 1982 compilation album, A DJ Explosion in a Dance Hall Style, recorded live at the historic Skateland Dance Hall venue in Kingston, Jamaica. 
Going Down to Texas is somewhat of a cover of Kenny Rogers' 1979 country hit, Coward of the County. Do you remember that Tom was only 10 when his father died in prison? I was his uncle's father, big old brown old man. His daddy said, promise me, son, then I'm gonna do the things I done. Walk away from trouble if you can. Do you remember it down? Mean you weak? If you don't cry, you know I'm 16 this week. Someday you're gonna grow to be a man. Mm. The Old West influence also introduced terms like posse. In these Western movies, posses fought against each other in ambiguous moral terms, but still in a dichotomy, the good versus the bad. In the 1960s, with the growing popularity of these films, the term posse was adopted in Jamaica to refer to gangs. I said a early grave, Joseph morning, and not a little Joseph child was born in the ghetto. Down in the ghetto, listen to me cleanly. He didn't learn how to steal, didn't learn how to fight, he learned how to read his Bible all the time in the ghetto. This next clip includes the songs Lee Van Cleef by King Stitt and Clint Eastwood by The Upsetters. Lee Van Cleef was a popular actor known for his roles in spaghetti western films, such as the 1967 film The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Lee Scratch Perry's band The Upsetters made several references to westerns with albums like Return of Django and The Good, The Bad, and The Upsetters. This is the days of rot, Eastwood. I am the ugly one. If you want me, meet me at the big gun down. I am Van Cleve. Die! 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 Clint Eastwood is Jamaican film The Harder They Come introduced reggae music to the U.S. The movie starred Jamaican reggae musician and actor Jimmy Cliff as Ivanhoe Ivan Martin. The film begins with Ivan meeting Jose, played by Carl Bradshaw, who takes Ivan to see the 1966 spaghetti western Django. (laughs) Ivan develops into an outlaw folk hero. He is loosely based on Jamaica's real-life legendary outlaw hero, Vincent Ivanhoe Martin, also known as Rijing. Rijing was a cultural icon in Jamaica and is often considered the original rude boy. Johnny Too Bad by the Slickers from the 1973 soundtrack of the film The Harder They Come. Oh, oh, oh. 
Boy culture in Jamaica has been around for a while and has continued to evolve. In the 90s, Jamaican dancehall artists released albums like Supercat's Don Dada and Terry Gyanzi's Outlaw Nuff Reward. Even as recently as 2014, Tommy Lee Sparta, a member of Vibes Cartel's Portmore Empire crew, released a single called Outlaw. Some people didn't like the Rude Boy's machismo violence. It tells stories of outlaw heroes and vigilante justice. But the music spoke to a history of defiance. For many people, it became a way to escape social constructs through rebel music. Speaking of my mind, no word upon chalk line. This dairy girl tell her face me gonna shine. To get rid of an obstacle, it ain't a crime. Oh my, my oh my. We are rude boy, not take, not take. Not take, not take, I mean no like no bumps check. We're taking rude boy, not take, not take. Not take no tech, we no like no bones. We taking rude boy. Not take no tech. Not take no tech, I mean no demon possess. Who is up next to this? We'll get shot in our chest. Mr. Mother is waiting. That was Worldview Production Assistant Gali Abdullah on this week's Global Notes. This is Lone Ranger and Tanto by Tenor Saw. We're going to talk about Iran again, and we're going to discuss the unprecedented sanctions the U.S. says it is going to slap on Iran. We'll talk with a specialist in sanctions about the level and nature of the sanctions the U.S. will use. Also, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And tomorrow we'll talk with a woman from central Kenya. She was cited by President Obama as an inspiration to him when he visited Kenya. And she rescues young women and girls from female genital cutting and early marriage. We'll talk about the Samburu Girls Foundation tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered. J. Kyle Sullivan engineered as well. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.